1: Uh, he's achieved the highest academic rank conferred by university president. Uh, he directs the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law and is the founding O'Neill chair in global health law. Uh, so we're going to talk about uh his work. So Larry, thanks for coming. How are you doing?
2: Thanks for having me, Richard. Appreciate it.
1: Yeah, it's, it, it may be obvious, but what uh what topics are you working on right now in terms of uh health law and global health law?
2: Well, it is obvious because we're gripped in a once-in-a-century Event that none of us have experienced in our lifetime. COVID 19 pandemic has literally controlled every life on the planet. You know, in my work in global health law, um, that's really what I'm focusing on almost entirely. Um, My wife jokingly says, you know, uh, that I've got the pandemic that I've always wanted. Of course, that's not true, but uh, it gives you an indication that I really am uh, immersed in the COVID 19 response. Both in the United States mm. and globally.
1: So, what do you see? You know, since March of this year up through now, it, I mean, what I see, you know, again, just being an outsider is uh, a whole lot of copycatting going on, and uh, you know, I, I don't even know what what it means that what is a health law, what are global health laws, but I mean, again, just first an overview of what do you see at this point, and what is it? What does it look like up to this point, and then we'll we'll get into some nuance.
2: Well, you know. You know, you have to take a step back. You know, there was, um, we're right now about a year on from the the first moments of the pandemic, which was, you know, sometime in December in Wuhan in China, Um, there was a zoonotic leap um, from a bat to an intermediary animal and then to a human. And then it had a relentless march across the globe throughout China, China. East Asia, Europe, the United States, and now literally everywhere just last week, we found first cases in Antarctica. So every continent on the globe has been affected. And so, you know, what are the major lessons um, that we've found? Uh, well, one of them is is that, you know, although we're all in this together, we're really experiencing it in a very different way, stark uh, health inequalities Um, say, you know, Black Americans dying at rates, you know, four times as great as white Americans. And so it's amplified so much of our health inequalities. And it's also our racial inequalities. And we've seen racial unrest this past summer. Um, So that's the first thing is just the sheer unequalness of it all. The other thing that I notice is that while Mother Nature is, you know, a wily enemy, um, and she's thrown a really horrific virus at us. And frankly, the United States has done horribly in controlling the virus, perhaps the worst in the whole world. But the virus has met an equally formidable force, which is uh, human ingenuity in science. And now we're um, beginning to vaccinate our population. And so It's going to be a long tunnel, but I do see the light at the end of the tunnel.
1: Well, when you talk about global health law, what what does that mean? What are the the health laws, not just in a country, but globally? Are there any?
2: There are. Well, first of all, when I talk about global health law, I also talk about national laws. And so, you know, laws uh, around the world in terms of we've seen lockdowns unprecedented in our history. Um, Those were, you know, orders for people to shelter in place at home, legal orders for people to, uh, for businesses to close. Uh, And then even after the lockdown, orders to wear masks, to socially distance, to limit uh, large gatherings. And so there's a whole layer of law that's been applied to the United States and to every country in the world. But we also have international law in the form of the uh, international health regulations. It's a treaty with 196 states that are, bo- that are bound by it, including the United States. It's a World Health Organization treaty, and it governs um, how we detect, report, and respond to novel infectious diseases.
1: Have there been any changes or amendments to the treaty? Uh, since you know the beginning of this year, no. it looks like there's been re- you know some new definitions of uh, pandemic and new definitions of herd, herd immunity and all that. Yes. And have you seen any material changes to it?
2: There actually haven't been. I mean, the WHO is um, really, yeah. There there haven't. Okay. There were major changes in the international health regulations after SARS, um, when the regulations were completely rewritten, and then even after the Ebola. Uh, epidemic in West Africa, and um, there were major changes in in governance of infectious diseases. But now, even though the international health regulations have been really not up to the task because countries have pretty much ignored it, it's too early for us to have learned the lessons. Right now, the World Health Organization has launched two major inquiries. Um, one is in January, it's going to send its team of 10 international scientists to Wuhan to find out the origins of the virus. And at the same time, it's launched an independent inquiry into the COVID response. And that independent inquiry will specifically look at reforming the international health regulations. And there are many areas that are ripe for reform.
1: Well, I've seen on the, uh, the WHO change its recommendations throughout the year. Don't do masks, do masks. Then don't do lockdowns now. But before, they, they didn't really say much about it. Um, I've seen there's a lot of change in what uh, WHO and here in the U.S. the CDC has said. So, I mean, what are you observing? Are they, uh,
2: yeah, well, it's, where are they
1: it's, headed with all this?
2: Yeah, there have been a lot of changed messages, both from the CDC and from WHO. You've mentioned a couple like, you know, mask wearing would be one example. Another would be aerosolized spread of the of the virus, a number of things like that. Um, but these are caused by two things. I mean, first, I think genuinely the science has changed. Um, and at the beginning, it wasn't clear that universal mask wearing would be as effective as it is. But once the science became clear, both CDC and WHO recommended it. Undoubtedly, uh, both WHO and CDC, their messages were inconsistent and not clear. And there wasn't good health education of the public. You know, a lot of this had to do with, you know, the fault of the CDC and WHO. But also a lot of it had to do with President Trump, who continually undermined science throughout the entire pandemic and undercut the CDC and the WHO?
1: Well, I mean, for instance, um, a month or two ago, WHO said lockdowns cause more harm than good. But yet we see all these nations locking down again. And if lockdowns worked the first time, I mean, why are they doing it again and again? So it seems like the whole world is kind of picking some stuff from the CDC and WHO, well, WHO really, and now ignoring it and back and forth. So uh, I don't know if they're losing their... Their audience or what's happening just doesn't really make sense.
2: Well, you're right about a lot of that. There's certainly been a we don't really understand the nature of lockdowns or the nature of travel restrictions. So let's take the easy one, travel restrictions. We've seen travel restrictions all over the world. But the truth is, we don't have evidence to know, know whether they work, when and if they work and how they work. So we're really flying blind. We don't know um, the extent to which travel restrictions are needed or whether they actually just do more harm than good. And that's true with lockdowns as well. Um, Certainly lockdowns seem to be needed when the health system and hospitals are going to be overwhelmed. Um, So it's a way to kind of just protect your health system. But lockdowns also cause a great deal of economic and social hardship, mental health problems, unemployment, businesses closing. Um, and that's why WHO said that they didn't say lockdowns don't work. They said that they should be used as a last
0: resort. And I think that's probably true. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
1: So what do you think is going to be the, uh, the path from here over the next year?
0: Yeah, I mean, the path
2: over the next weeks and months in the United States and Europe, I'm expecting to see a surge upon a surge upon a surge. That is, I'm expecting to see, you know, really, truly catastrophic numbers of people uh, getting COVID, being hospitalized, dying. And so I think we're you know, the dark days are definitely in front of us. But I do see a light at the end of the tunnel. These vaccines that we're deploying in the United States are very effective. Um, they're, they've got up to 95% effectiveness, and they appear to be relatively safe. And so, you know, by mid to late summer, when we've immunized, uh, you know, much of the population, I can foresee that we're going to start to really begin to climb back to normal. And by some time in 2021, we'll be almost fully back to normal, and I think that's a realistic forecast about where we're going to be. The problem is, is that the rest of the world will not be in the fortunate position wherein Africa, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, Latin America, they may not fully vaccinate their populations until 2024, and so there's going to continue to be a pandemic raging around the globe. And the United States will be vulnerable to clusters of cases as we open up travel. But I do think um, that these vaccines are going to help us turn the corner.
1: Well, if the vaccines work, why would people that are, I mean, people that are vaccinated wouldn't, be, uh, wouldn't have a problem, right? So the United States is largely vaccinated, as you postulated this year, why would there be much of a danger?
2: There will be some danger for a number of reasons. I mean, if you look at an equally effective vaccine, say measles, you still see pockets of measles in the United States. Some of them are because you've got communities like religious communities or other communities uh, that refuse to be vaccinated, and you get clusters of cases coming up there. So I can see COVID cases clustering around unvaccinated communities. But in addition, you're going to have cases come from abroad. And not everybody will be vaccinated in the United States. And those that are not vaccinated um, will still be exposed and will get COVID. Um, so I'm not ex- certainly we'll never eradicate COVID the way we've eradicated smallpox. But it's possible we could eliminate it. And elimination just means that in a localized area that you've reached herd immunity and that you've largely got the outbreak under control. Um, but that doesn't mean we're not going to continue to see cases. I I foresee we're going to continue to see COVID cases in the United States for the indefinite future. But we'll learn to live with it through vaccination, treatment, and things like that.
1: Do you think that, um, I don't know, the world's now on a hair trigger? I mean, they are, especially in regards to COVID. But, it, you know, in the future, of there's uh, even a small number of cases. Do you think that there'll be lockdowns and all these draconian measures, or what do you think
2: will happen? Such a great question. You know, the, the truth is that this isn't the last major pandemic that we're going to have. I can't tell you when the next one will be, and I can't tell you exactly what kind of a virus will it be. Will it be a coronavirus, or an Ebola virus, or an influenza virus? But I can tell you that it will happen. And Men, most times it won't be a pandemic, it'll just be a novel outbreak and we don't want to overreact, but we might. Um, we've seen that you know, recently with the genomic variant of the COVID virus um, that was found in the UK when we started just slapping on a lot of travel restrictions. And as you say, uh, other countries and, and even the United States is starting to lock down again. I hope we're not going to overreact in the future. We need to react uh, in ways that are effective, that is we need to be able to immediately detect a an outbreak and respond to it very forcefully with testing, contact tracing, and isolation. And lockdowns should indeed be the last resort, and we shouldn't rush to them because they have enormously harmful social Economic mental health uh, consequences for people for families for for communities and for all of our uh, country
1: so what do you think uh, some of the reform in global health law will be you know over the next year
2: well i know I know what I hope it will be, but w h o is a very stodgy organization, and it's very hard to get its member countries to actually um, make changes but you know if you look back. Although I very strongly disagree with President Trump's blaming of China and the WHO, nonetheless, China did not act as a good global citizen early on because they didn't promptly report the coronavirus outbreak and they didn't let WHO into its territory. So one big issue is, you know, WHO has to have the power to independently verify what states are saying. China wasn't not telling the truth early on. It wasn't being transparent. And WHO is powerless to change that. So I hope that one of the things will be giving WHO more powers to independently verify country reports, particularly countries that are tend to be um, less than transparent, less than democratic, less than open. That's one thing. Dr. Tedros, the head of WHO, has also called for a intermediate emergency, so it's not an all or nothing, but something that is kind of like, if you think about it, like a you know an orange stops an orange light, you know, be cautious um, before a full blown emergency is called. Um, That's another uh, area that we uh, might uh, see some kind of um, changes in the international health regulations, and then finally. You know, we're going to have to come to grips with, you know, what international law says about travel restrictions, lockdowns, and other kinds of measures. Can't be silent on these the way it is now. So we're going to have to figure out and get some evidence about whether, which interventions work, when and why. We don't have any of that. Surprisingly, you know, we've suffered from pandemics for millennia. And we still don't have basic information about what works and doesn't.
1: Well, I mean, since China wasn't forthcoming, why, if, if the WHO or anyone else sends a team, you know, this year or next year, why would they magically be forthcoming then?
2: I agree with you. I don't think they will be. Um, WHO is sending a team. You know, it's a, it's going into Wuhan, and it's an international team. And I would just point out two things. I mean, first is is that you know, China didn't allow a WHO team into Wuhan for a full year after uh, the outbreak started. And you can't go back and find out uh, the clues to this pandemic and the origins a year later. So it it was too late. But it's also too little because it's unclear what access WHO is going to have to independent sources of information. And so that's why International law does need to change to you know give WHO more power, more leverage against a country like China. I mean, China did a lot of things right with this pandemic, but it also did a lot wrong. And among the things it did wrong was to sanction whistleblowers and independent scientists, not report honestly and accurately to the WHO, and not to allow WHO to get onto its soil and do an, a thorough independent, rigorous inve- investigation, those things never happened.
1: Well, hopefully uh things will improve what in what way are you going to be uh, you know trying to guide policy or influence it you know over the next year and, and how have you been so far?
2: Well, I've been doing a lot. I mean I work very, very closely with the World Health Organization. I work closely with the National Governors Association, with the Biden transition team. And I'm also publishing a lot on tomorrow, Tuesday, I have a um, an article coming out in the Journal of the American Medical Association on mandatory vaccinations in the United States. But also I've had, you know, pushed the Biden transmission to transition to rejoin WHO, to work constructively and to fund WHO, um, and also to use science and empower the CDC and invest in the CDC um, so that in the future, CDC performs better and more and is more able to protect the American public than it was during this epidemic.
1: Okay. Well, very good. So Larry, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work and policymaking? Where can they go?
2: Yeah, they can, They what can they do is they can Sign on to the listserv of the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law at Georgetown University, and also just look up my CV and bio on the Georgetown University Law Center website. It will give you all of the things that I've been doing, and uh, I've been—I've never been more active than I am now with the COVID response, and it just seems to be so much to do, and so much went wrong. And so we've got to get it right next time.
1: Very good. Well, Larry, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it.
2: Um, Thank you so much for having me, Richard. I appreciate you inviting me.
0: If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.